Well, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And usually when we get to a new chapter in our study, we uh, read through that chapter. This is a long chapter. It's 58 verses, so I'm going to have you just remain seated. Usually we stand for the Word of God, but I'm sure God will understand uh, the reading of His Word. But uh, it's, a, it's a long reading, so you can just remain in your seats. But a lot of times as believers, when we speak to unbelievers, when we talk to those who have yet to have been touched by the gospel, transformed, um, a lot of times the truths of Scripture that we hold very dear and near and dear to our hearts uh, are not believed by unbelievers. Sometimes they're even mocked. And uh, it doesn't even seem weird to a lot of people if we choose to follow Christ. They're okay with that. They allow that. Um, but sometimes it's hard for people to understand the topic, what we're going to talk about a little bit today, at least introduce this topic, the resurrection of Christ. And uh, I remember years ago I was witnessing to a man and he basically, um, after I gave him the gospel, he said, you know what, Steve, I can pretty much go along with everything you said. Yeah, the world's messed up. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, you know, apparently Jesus died and everything. That's great. Uh, one thing I cannot accept is that he rose from the dead. And then he ended the conversation saying, why would I have to believe that anyway? What's it matter if I have faith? that Jesus forgave my sins. It doesn't matter whether he rose from the dead or not. And I remember that conversation, and I thought, wow. And his, his reasoning was logical. He said, dead people don't come back to life. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Uh, and, and I understood what he was saying. But at the same time, the, the challenge, I think, of our own belief in Christ's resurrection is not something that began with modern science or the modern theology and naturalistic thinking that we see out there today. It's been a foolish notion, really, that has been around since the day Jesus rose from the dead. People have doubted it. Um, and Paul, in this chapter, we just finished talking about spiritual gifts for months, and now he brings up something of theological, even more theological implication than spiritual gifts. He brings up resurrection. And as we go through this chapter, you're going to find out that he's not saying they don't believe that Christ rose from the dead. You know, they're, they're, they're even willing to accept that, the Corinthian churches. But what they misunderstood was this is going to be their future. <laughs> they couldn't get through their head that one day they would rise from the dead. And so the subject that we're going to look at is not so much the resurrection of Christ. It's in this chapter. It's read almost every Easter, right? You turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about the resurrection of Christ. But what Paul's main concern here in this chapter was not so much the fact of the resurrection, but the fact that the Corinthians couldn't get through their head that one day that was going to be their calling, that they were going to be rose, risen from the dead by God's power. And so when you stop and you think about it, the, the, the resurrection of Christ is very foundational to our belief as Christians, in Christianity. If you take away the resurrection of Christ, you don't have anything. And I would say, furthermore, if you take away our resurrection, <laughs> I don't have any either, <laughs> because there's nothing to look forward to if you just go in the grave and rot. That's where you stay. But one day, the Bible says that God will, all those who love Christ, who have committed their lives to Christ, will rise from the dead. Those in the church will rise at the rapture of the church. From the Old Testament, those who had believed before, through the tribulation, will rise at the resurrection of the saints at the end of the tribulation. But we will all rise. We will be given glorified bodies. We will be people. We will be, have a personality. 
And that's the promise of God's word. And so, as Christians, we don't believe in the teaching of incarnation, the idea that some kind, there's some kind of endless life cycle that goes on where you come back um, as a, a, if you're good, maybe another human being. If you're not, then you come back as a bug or an ant or something. You know? We don't believe in that because the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, but we also don't believe in things like annihilation where even some Christians believe that, well, after you die, you just go to the grave and that's it. Uh, there is no hell. There is no anything else. For, for those who, who don't trust in Christ. Um, we don't believe in what I was taught growing up in the Catholic Church, a, a teaching called soul sleep, where you, you, you kind of go to sleep in this place called purgatory, and, and hopefully somebody in the church will give enough money to the church and say enough prayers for you that one day you'll work your way out of purgatory into heaven. I mean, where's the hope in that? I mean, if I was relied on... on on anybody to care for my soul after I died, I'd be in trouble. And I think most of us would be. You know, we don't believe in that. We believe that after we die, as believers, we will live. We will live. We will live. We will live as spirits, but we will also live joined together with our newly resurrected, glorified body. And forever, we're going to be with Christ that's something to look forward to, uh, living in a resurrected, eternal body. No more pain, no more problems, no more issues. That's our hope as believers. If you lose that hope, if you don't believe that, there's, I mean, yeah, you may have hope in this, this life, but what about the life hereafter? And it was very important that Paul brings this up, by the way, because back in this day, just culturally, Okay, in the ancient world, um, it was a, a matter of people mocking those who believed in the resurrection. They really couldn't understand how uh, you would believe that a, a body, a physical body, could be raised from a grave, especially in the Greek world, because they believed that your spirit was good, but your, the matter, the body itself, was bad, and so never would the two rejoin. Matter of fact, they thought when you died and you freed yourself of your physical body, it was rather a freeing, freeing thing that happened. And so the ultimate end of all people should be the complete deliverance from all material things. And so they believed in this spiritual life in the hereafter where you go up and hang out on a cloud and play a harp for the rest of eternity. But Christianity teaches us something completely different. The Bible teaches us something completely different. And it's in the message of the New Testament, the message that the Corinthians need to hear, the, the message that we need to hear today. And it's the simple message that you will live forever. You will live forever. And by the way, that you will live forever whether you're saved or not. Because the Bible speaks of a place for those who haven't put their place, their, their faith in Christ, a place called hell, of eternal torment, fire where nothing ever burns up. You just feel the heat and the judgment and the wrath of God for all eternity. But trust me, you will be very much alive in that moment. And for believers, it's the glorious state of heaven. It's the glorious state of being with our Savior in a glorified state. So in the, in the 15th chapter here, he gives a very, very thorough, and it's going to take very months for us to get through this whole chapter, but it's going to enlighten us as to how thorough Paul is on this subject. And it, it really shows you how important this subject is, especially to the Corinthians at the time. And so it all begins in the opening verses with the look at the gospel, and we're going to look at that today. Because it was Jesus who said, because I live, what? You will live also, right? That's what he said. That's his promise. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. He's the, the first fruits, the Bible calls them, of those who died, who fell asleep. Philippians tells us that we will have a body onto the likeness of his glorious body. Um, and when you think about the, the body of Christ, 
after his resurrection, it was a body that could be touched, right? Physically, it could be touched. Remember Thomas? You know, I'm not going to believe. Oh, wow. (laughs) Go ahead. Put your hand in my side. Put your, look at my wounds. It was, it, was a, it was a body that could be touched. Um, it was a body that could speak. It could socialize. And you see that in the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord on so many different occasions. I know a lot of you will amen this. It was a body that could eat. Amen? I mean, yeah, I mean, we're having a big meal over there afterwards. You're welcome to join us. And so the resurrection of Christ is really the beginning point of a discussion of our resurrection. That's what he's doing here in chapter 15. And the first 11 verses deals with the resurrection of Christ, because if the resurrection of Christ didn't happen, then we're not going to be resurrected. So he wants the Corinthians to understand it. They were okay accepting the resurrection of Christ, by the way, but they couldn't get it through their head about their own personal resurrection. And so it's really a glimpse, this chapter is into our glorious future. And you ought to care about this because it's what we have received from, from the Lord himself. And so as we read this, I just want you to follow along in your, your Bibles. And uh, I'll read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 to 58. And so beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so... You believed. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is exempted who put all things under, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us drink, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company, Ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it as a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. Living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives 
us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of everything he just said, in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts as we look at the first opening verses here and just pray that you would clear our hearts, our minds, as we focus upon it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Sometimes we just need to read Scripture. Amen? I mean, there's nothing wrong with sitting down and in heaven. Now, if I made you stand for the whole thing, you'd probably be a little irritated right now. But hopefully, you're comfortable there, and you could concentrate on what was being read. And you see the whole gist of what Paul is communicating. Remember, this is a book to us, but it was a letter to them. In other words, someone stood up and read this letter to the Corinthian church in one sitting. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, if, you know, we've gone through chapters where we feel a little beat up after we study them for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Can you imagine what it would be like to just have all this unloaded on you at one time in one sitting? And so having dealt with all these issues in the church of Corinth, Paul turns to this vital doctrinal controversy over the resurrection. And, and both the, the Gentile and the Jewish opponents could have influenced the believers at Corinth. Because remember, they were, they were kind of opening their doors wide open. They were embracing the world, this church was. And so somehow the influence of the denial of the resurrection got into the, the fray of this church, and it began to sway certain even believers that, well, you can believe in Jesus' resurrection, but you're not going to be resurrected. Don't believe that. That's, that's fanciful teaching. But the central fact of the Christian religion is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You understand that Jesus could have done everything he did, even gone up to the cross and died on the cross, even as a perfect sacrifice. But if we could go to a grave today and find the body of Christ, none of that would matter. That's what Paul is saying. Without the resurrection of Christ, we are still dead in our sins. Why? Because his offering would not have been legitimate. Him coming from the grave, back from the grave, was really God the Father's sign of approval on all that he did and fulfilled the promise of what he said he would do. I mean, it's really impossible to overestimate the importance of the resurrection, the topic of the resurrection in our, in our faith. Uh, today, we live in a world that's, you know, we're, we're bombarded daily. Are we not 24-7, 365 days a year with this news cycle? It just doesn't stop. I mean, even when you unplug the TV, it doesn't stop, right? I mean, you still hear stuff. They come up on your iPhone, on your text, you know, and all these other ways they get to you. Driving down the, the freeway, you see a billboard, and they're putting news up there now. Or you're walking through the airport, and they got the TV, with, of all news people, the CNN on, you know. It's just like, wow, you just can't escape it. You know, I mean, you'd have to go up in the middle of nowhere and, without any electricity and no cell phone coverage or anything just to kind of unwind we don't understand what it means to be without news today. And it's not only, you know, that, but they, they just keep on rehashing the same news. You know, sometimes, you know, my wife will say, oh, did you hear this? And I'll say, yeah, that happened like three days ago. Oh, it just popped up on my phone. <laughs> you know, and that's how the news cycle goes. You know, they just keep on going and going. I mean, if there's something that happens in any part of the world today, we know about it, probably within the hour. It's amazing. And you say, well, what's that have to do with the resurrection? Well, I want to ask you this. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about what we just read in this way? I mean, many of us have grown up in the Christian faith, maybe Catholic, Christian, whatever, and we've heard about the resurrection. You know, we've gone to Easter services, and we know, okay, yeah, Jesus rose from the grave, and we heard all the stories, and we, we know it. We taught it in Sunday school. And it's just become a familiar thing to us. Um, but it, has it ever occurred to you 
that for the longest period of time after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was no writing about it. There was no news crew there at the, at the tomb waiting for Jesus to rise from breaking news. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, there were soldiers there. <laughs> Why? They weren't waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. They were warding off anybody that would steal his body, right? So they didn't even believe in the resurrection. But what's interesting is that what we're reading here today, uh, you know, it wasn't like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the gospel accounts of the resurrection. They were, after Jesus rose, they went home and, oh, yeah, we got to write this down. No. There was no written word of this until some 15 years whatever, later, that Paul actually recorded this. This is recorded before the gospel accounts of the resurrection. It's pretty amazing. I remember hearing that when I was in a New Testament survey class. By, it was taught by Dr. Moore at Christian Heritage when I went there. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I thought, you know, isn't that happened back in Matthew? You know, we fall into the, the danger of thinking that our, our Bibles are laid out chronologically. Well, they're not. Okay? And so we have to be careful the way we, we read them sometimes. The resurrection for years and the account, this account appears almost 15 years after the accounts in the earliest Gospels. So it's, it's kind of a, it precedes the earliest Gospels, excuse me, by almost 15 years. And so those of us who've had access to the resurrection all of our lives, since we've been little and Sunday school and all these, we can't possibly realize what it must have been like during the first century for these early believers. They didn't have certain things written to them. They didn't have the completed canon of Scripture. And we don't know exactly what questions were being asked about the resurrection, but we knew that there were some doubts about it because Paul gives us so much time here about it. And he gives a very extensive answer about this, the significance of the resurrection. In the first part of this chapter, really verses 1 to 38, he, he dwells on the fact of, of, of Christ's resurrection, the idea that, well, Christ did rise from the dead, and here are the implications. And then the latter part, in verses 39 to 58, he kind of makes some introductory statements, but he talks about the, our own resurrection, what it's going to be like, what our body's going to be like, all these things. And so we're going to be getting into all this. But look at verse 1, because he starts off here talking about the prominence of the resurrection. And in the verse 11 verses, he's talking primarily about the, the resurrection of Christ, but he says, I would remind you, brothers. Uh, he wants them to know that Remember, the Corinthian church was filled with problems, and he's just spent extensive amount of time in his letter to them, chewing them out, saying, what are you doing? You, your spiritual gifts are all messed up. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing. It's not honoring to Christ. You're more uh, involved with being, you know, putting yourself in front of everyone and making yourself preeminent beyond everybody else. You're more concerned with how you look and all this stuff. You're, you're just focused on yourselves. You're not focused on serving the body of Christ, and he just really just reams them out. And so then he has to revisit. He said, now I want to remind you, brothers, look, I'm still, your, I'm still your friend. You know, you're still my brother in Christ, even though your, your, your life is not representing it at the time. And so he begins to talk about his preaching the gospel to them. He says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. I find that interesting that he has to remind them who he is. He has to remind them. Remember, this is a very affectionate term that Paul is using for these people. And he wants to remind them of the elements of the gospel. Uh, he's not challenging their acceptance of it. He's not saying you haven't accepted it. As a matter of fact, he does say that they accepted it. But he says it's, it's foundational that you understand this and what is he making known? He's making known the gospel. He says, literally, if you want to read it literally, he literally says, I gospelized you. 
which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are also saved. So that's the starting point for any discussion about our future lives. I mean, Paul's going to get into the future life of our resurrected bodies, but the first and foremost, he wants them to understand, listen, you can't get past the gospel. If you don't understand what the gospel is, if you don't understand your need of the gospel, it doesn't matter what's coming down the road for you because you're going to miss it. So they had received this from Paul. He had given it to them. And remember, he was the one that God used to reach the, he was the one that planted this church. And he has to come back to them because they got caught up in all the fray of everything else. And he says, do I, you know, I want to remind you, brothers, as your spiritual father, as the one who spent time with you, preaching the gospel to you initially and being your, your pastor for 18 some months, I have to remind you of this. He was the one who preached the gospel to them. All the way back in, in chapter 4 of verse, four, or verse, verse 15, he says, you may have countless guides. He tells them that. He says, you may have many teachers. You have may, may, may have many tutors, many people who have instructed you, because remember, they were all about Follow the leader. You know, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus. I'm, they're, they're, they're making a big deal out of who's discipling them. But in that verse, chapter 4, verse 15, he says, but you do not have many fathers. In other words, you don't have many people that led you to the Lord. You have one, and that's me. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So he's reminding them here in the opening statements that he was the one that God used in their lives to draw them to Christ. Can you remember back when you first came to Christ? Can you remember the circumstances? You know, we do well, I think, to ponder those thoughts. Because if you're like me, sometimes you forget. You forget. What was it feeling like? What, was it, what did it feel like being confronted with the gospel for the first time? Wait, you're calling me a sinner? Man, I'm Catholic. What are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I go to Mass every, every week. I'm an altar boy. I go to confession. I, you're calling me a sinner? How, you know, how dare you do that? I mean, it took somebody a long night over dinner at my brother's house constantly showing me over and over and over the verses that I'm going to share with you right now because it's important to understand the gospel. And that's what Paul wants them to, to see first and foremost here in verse 1. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. You know, if you want a good verse to summarize the gospel completely, look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A lot of us have this memorized. Chapter 5, verse 21. This is basically a, a picture of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake, for whose sake? Our sake. He, who, God, made him, who's that? Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. What's that talking about? It's talking about God transferring our unrighteousness, our sin, to his completely righteous son, then it says, the result of that, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That verse is basically the gospel in a nutshell. The good news of the gospel is that, you know what, yeah, we were lost and dying in our sin. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, we're born in sin. You're not born good and you become bad. That's not what the Bible teaches Psalms tells us that it's, you know, we're born in iniquity. We're born with a sinful heart. You know, I've never met someone who said, yeah, I just, you know, I have to teach my kid to be bad because he's just been such a good baby. He's just a teenager, everything. He's just been so good. I just want to uh, teach him to do something bad, to know that he's normal. No. 
That never happens. It's usually the other way around. Man, I wish my kid would do something right, right? Because they're bent on sin. And because of our sin, the Bible says that we are held account to that. We have to stand before a righteous God in an unrighteous manner. And so God says, to fix that, I'm going to send my son, who is completely righteous, completely sinless, and he's going to come and he's going to have to take on a human body as God, and he's going to have to go to a, a cross, live an obedient life, go to a cross, give his life up voluntarily on a cross, and on him I'm going to put all of the sin of everyone who would ever believe in him for salvation. He is going to bear the weight of all of our sin who have trusted him for salvation, even though he has never committed one sin. Have you ever been blamed for something you didn't do? You know, you get blamed for something you didn't do, and you know you didn't do it, and you try to be defensive, and it just gets worse. It's just not a good scenario. You don't like to be blamed. You don't want something put on you that doesn't belong. Can you imagine what Christ endured as the perfect lamb of God as he hung on the cross, and, and God transferred to his account all of our unrighteousness? And then the other side of that, what did God do? He said, are you going to trust in my son? Well, guess what? You're going to get all his righteousness. I'm going to transfer to your account the righteousness of my son. Why do you have to do that? Because guess what? We don't have any righteousness because of our sin. Look over at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith, what is faith? Faith is the ability to trust in something you don't even understand or see, and that's given to you by God. Through faith in Christ Jesus, he's the object of our faith. That's why we, we teach in Christ, in Christ what? Alone. You know, it's not, well, Christ plus come to church. It's not Christ, well, you got to pr pray this, or you got to read this, or you got to do this, or you got to get baptized, or you go down the list. No, it's Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. So he says, through faith in Christ, for all who, what? Believe. So we've been through our doctrines of grace. We understand that God is sovereign, that God has chosen us, as Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world. God is completely sovereign over our salvation. We believe in the doctrines of election, the whole, the whole nine yards. But guess what? You still have to believe. You still have to believe. It doesn't happen automatically. Does God give you the grace to believe? Yes. But that doesn't take away your responsibility to put your faith, your trust in Christ. And this is the good part here in verse 22. He says, for there's no distinction. In other words, it doesn't matter what you're upbringing. You could be Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Verse 23, what's it say? For all have sinned. Everybody has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That one verse, a pastor spent probably an hour and a half with me the night I was saved. I could not understand that verse. He said, Steve, do you understand what this is saying? He says, for all have sinned. Well, no, I, I, yeah, I, I get that. You know, I mean, my brother, I mean, he's a recovering alcoholic. I mean, he's, he's got some major issues. I definitely, he needs this stuff. But I mean, I, I go to church every week. I, you know, I don't really drink once in a while, maybe with my buddies, but that's about it. I don't really cuss. Don't, you know, I'm a pretty good kid. Don't get me started on the rest of my family because I can just go down the list. And it was this game of comparison for an hour and a half. And he just kept on pointing to the verse, but what does it say? Well, it says, for all have sinned. But I'm not that bad. I'm really not. It just, it would not com compute in my head until God gave me the grace to understand. And he said, let's just back up. For, what's that word? Oh, you know, I'm not stupid. I mean, I've been to college. Well, what does all mean? Well, 
All means all. Well, do you think that includes you? And even then, it's like, well, I'm not that bad. And finally, it was God said, yeah, it does. It does include you. You're no better than anybody else. There's not a person in this room who hasn't sinned. There isn't a person in this room who some form, some fashion in their life hasn't fallen short of God's glory, sinned. That's what the verse says. All have done it. We're all in the same boat. And he says, and all are justified by his grace as a gift. Those who trust in Christ are justified as his, by his grace as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. Doesn't work that way. You mean it's free? Yeah. Why would he do that? I don't know. Why would he do it for me? You're looking at me, I'm looking at you. I don't know if I'd do that for you, frankly. You probably wouldn't do that for me. But God did. He cares for us, he loves us. He desires us to have the sin that we carry around daily forgiven through Christ. It can only happen through Christ, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, can't you have faith in something else? Can't you have faith in Buddha? Well, you can. <laughs> Go ahead. It's not going to do you any good when it comes to the forgiveness of your sin. That's why the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man. Guess who that is? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, who God put forward as a propitiation of satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, verse 26 says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad you don't have to justify yourself before God? Have you ever been in a situation where you have to justify yourself? It's kind of humiliating. It's kind of like, you know, you don't want to do it, but you, sometimes you have to, but because maybe you're innocent, you feel like, oh, I justify myself, but it just doesn't look good. It looks like you're all about yourself, and here it would be impossible. There's only one who can do that, and it can only happen through faith in Christ, it says. And verse 27 is the outcome. Well, what then becomes of our boasting? Think what heaven would be like if we could save ourselves. What would heaven be like if by feeding so many homeless people you would get there or by you know, preaching so many years I would get there or by you know, helping little old ladies across the street they would get there? Whatever. Fill in the blank. I mean, we'd be in heaven going, oh, look what I did. Yeah, I did that. Oh, I did that. I did this. No. We're going to be in heaven, and you know that's, that's the one reason why in heaven, Jesus is still going to have scars. You're still going to see the scars in Jesus' body. And every time we see Jesus in heaven, we're going to be reminded, wow, that's what saved me. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God. So what becomes of our boasting, it says in verse 27, it's excluded. What kind, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. By faith you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast, as we learned yesterday in the, the men's breakfast. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God, verse 29, the God of the Jews only. Remember, he started off, there's no distinction here, so that argument's not going to work. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. See, we've been really fed a bill of goods when it comes to the gospel in the modern-day church because usually in the modern-day church, the presentation of the gospel starts like this. God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
I don't, I don't know if God's plan for you is wonderful or not. That's a pretty bold statement to make. It's not very biblically accurate either when you look at the text of Scripture. I mean, the text of Scripture, Psalm 5.5, says, The boastful shall not stand before thine eyes, and you hate all who do iniquity. It's speaking of God. Are you telling me that God hates? Yes. God hates. He says he hates all those who do wrong. Have you ever done anything wrong? Yeah, I think so. Have you ever done iniquity? Yeah. Does it say in Psalm 5, 5 that God just hates the sin, but he loves the sinner? You hear that a lot today. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says that he hates all those who do iniquity. And you might sit here today and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The New Testament, go to the New Testament, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. That's in the Bible. I know it. I memorized it. Yeah, that's in the, in the Bible, and that's true. But guess what? Psalm 5.5 is true, too. <laughs> God hates all those who do iniquity. See, this is the problem, really, with the American gospel. We only take one side of the coin, the one we like to look at. But you can't do that. That's impossible because coins have two sides. Logic won't allow that. And today we hear sermon after sermon after sermon on the love of God. And yet the Bible speaks very directly and very specifically about the hatred of God. What does God hate? But I bet you never heard a sermon about that. So it's very serious, the gospel, to understand it. Some people say, well, no, that's not my God. God doesn't hate because God is love. I know that John also says that. My answer to you would be no. God does hate because God is love. God does hate because God is love. You say, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Let me ask you a question. Do you love the Jewish people? Did you say you love the Jews? I hope so. God chosen people, you should love them. What if I asked you, what do you think about Holocaust? The Holocaust, all the tragedy that happened. Man, I don't really care about that stuff. Would you really love the Jewish people if you didn't care about the Holocaust? I don't think so. We just celebrated June, what do they call it, ninth? whatever it's called yeah okay yeah that's a big event in the history of our country freedom of slaves segregation all this stuff but if I began to you said well you know do, do you love our African American folks in our country oh sure sure but don't get me started on all this stuff I don't know or if I said do you love babies well, yeah, who doesn't love babies, right? Everybody loves babies. What do you think about abortion? Well, I don't care about that. You see, I mean, sometimes you have to love something to hate something. And so, really, the, the love of God is revealed through what he hates. He hates our iniquity. He hates our sin. Someone got kidnapped in our neighborhood and taken away for 10 years as a child, and they finally caught the person, if that actually happened. And I asked you about it, what's your view on that? And your answer was, well, I love kids, but you know, everybody's free to their own lifestyle. <laughs> You'd be just as big of a monster as the person that kidnapped the child, would you not? See, when you hear stories about how all these horrible things that happen around us and injustices and everything else, hopefully you get mad, you get angry. So why doesn't God have the right to do so in a holy manner? I mean, we have broken all the laws of God and we have the right to stand up and be angry because someone did maybe something bad to us or whatever, but God is love, so 
He just has to sit there and be neutral about things. No. The Bible clearly says that God is angry. He's angry about sin. The Bible says that he's angry every day with iniquity that goes on all around us. And so we have to be careful when we explain the gospel to people. Is God a God of love? Yes, but he's also a holy God. He's a God who's righteous. He's a God who demands perfection to be in his presence. That's what Jesus had to explain to the Pharisees. Well, how do we, how do we get to, to heaven? We well, have to be perfect because my father in, in heaven is perfect. And the, the simple answer to that is, well, wait a minute. None of us are perfect. How could that ever be accomplished? Exactly. See, exactly. That's why God had to send his son. That's why God had to send Jesus to the cross to bear the weight of sin for us. Because if we would have died on our own cross, it wouldn't have made any difference to anybody. Because we're just a, a sinner. And we need to understand that. And so Paul in this opening verse, I think he really wants to drive home the point that, you know what, if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand the, the basic principle that who you are, that you're a sinner, who God is, he's holy, but something has to be done with your sin, and Christ is the one who bore our sin. And when you put your faith, your trust in Christ, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. And you are declared righteous by God. Please understand, you're not, practically. <laughs> right? You're not. None of us are. We, we deal with sin every day. But positionally, before God, we are righteous. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that's why the Bible says, as believers, when we, when we sin and we all sin, we all fall, we all lose our temper, we all do things that we shouldn't do in this life, even as a Christian, and the weight of the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls upon us, and what do we do? The Bible says, since you forgive your, or confess your sins, he is faithful and just. A lot of translations read that if we confess our sins. My question is always this. It shouldn't be a question mark. Why would you not go to God and tell him you're sorry for your sin? Because he's not there to punish you. He's there to declare you righteous. He's there to say, yeah, I know about that. Jesus got it covered. Move along. But what do we do as believers? So many times we sin, and then we beat ourselves up. The enemy beats us up. To the point where we're so filled with, with shame that we can't even darken the door of the church. So then we isolate ourselves. We draw all the blinds down and we have a big pity party in our apartment. And God is saying, no, you don't need to do that as a child of God. Your sins are, are paid for. You are complete in Christ. You, you are declared righteous before God. Yeah, you should feel the weight of your sin. You should feel conviction when you sin. I'm not saying you just pass it off as something lightly. The Spirit of God won't let you do that. But when you feel that conviction, the first thing you do is you turn to the Father and you say, thank you for the forgiveness that you've given me in Christ. We don't have to beg God for forgiveness. It's a, it's a completed action in his mind. It's done. It's over. And so we need to be reminded of these things. And if you're here this morning, if you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that you would cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because you know what? If you don't get that past that word gospel in verse 1, none of, none of the rest of this chapter is going to mean anything to you. The first step is a step of faith, trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that's something that that God is, is working in your own heart just by the mere fact that you're here today and you're under the teaching of the authority of the word of God. I'll close with this verse because I think it's a good reminder for us as believers in Galatians chapter 1, another book that was written by Paul, by the way. Galatians chapter 1 Verse 6, 
and we'll get into this next week a little bit, I just want to read it for us because it's a good reminder of how quickly, even as believers, we can forget uh, what we were saved from, what we were saved out of, how we were saved. We need to revisit that often, more often than not. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, I am astonished. I am astonished, he's talking to the Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning, what? To a different gospel. To a different gospel. And he qualifies his statement in verse 7. He says, not that there is one, another one. You know, it's like when the Bible says, well, there's going to be many Christs. There's going to be many people that claim to be Christ. But you know what? There's only one. You know, yeah, there's many things that people worship. But guess what? They're just idols. They don't mean anything to anybody. There's only one God that, that should be worshipped. So he says, yeah, there's a lot of different gospels out there that you can follow after. And the Galatians were turning to a different gospel. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who troubled you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's what's going on in our churches today. They're distorting the gospel of Christ. Rather than just doing what they're supposed to be doing and be the waiter of God's word, and by that I mean they go to the kitchen, they take God's word, and they bring it out to the table, and they set it before the people, well, maybe they don't like beets. So I think I'm going to take this to my own kitchen and fix it up a little bit, and that puts something else on the plate. I'm not going to give them what the chef made them. And that's what happens in our modern-day churches. They're so offended by the gospel that they don't want to serve that meal to people. See, the good thing is when you're teaching the Bible, when you're just teaching through texts of Scripture, you just take the, the word and you lay it before the people. Hey, if you guys stone me, do you stone me? That's, that's not my problem. Somebody said after, after last week's service on women in the church, they said, well, at least you made it through the service. I said, wow, okay, I guess so. <laughs> Never thought of it that way, but kind of a controversial message, but it was important, and it was there in the text. So we don't apologize for teaching the Bible, but at the same time, we have to be careful that, you know what, we don't distort the Bible in order just to please men. We don't ever want to do that. Well, with that, we're going to close uh, with a word of prayer, and we'll have one last song. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that Paul was so focused on the gospel of Christ, that he knew that the Corinthian church was, had a lot of issues going on. He's just spent 14 chapters going through them, and yet he's still not done because he's got to tackle this theological issue of their own resurrection. It seemed that they agreed that Christ rose from the dead, but they couldn't conceive of themselves rising from the dead. And Lord, without a, our own resurrection in the future, really, what do we have to hope for? And so, Father, we pray today that you would uh, just make plain to each one the message of the gospel of Christ, that it's not in ourselves, it's not in a church, it's not in an event of baptism or um, previously raising a hand in a meeting or coming down an aisle or throwing a piece of wood in a fire at a campground or whatever, that doesn't save you. The only thing that saves you is, is when you bow before your creator God in humility and brokenness over your own sin and you cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me through the blood of Christ. I want to follow Christ. I want to take my eyes off my sin and put it on the Savior. That's a prayer that God will hear when it's prayed from a sincere heart. and He'll change you. He'll transform you into the person that he created you to be. And the burden of your sin will be lifted. And he'll place the Holy Spirit within your life and give you eyes to understand the word of God. And you'll have a renewed hunger to study and to pray and to, to be with God's people. All those things are, are results of someone being saved. And so, Lord, we pray today that each one would cry out to you. And as believers, Lord, that we would be reminded of our own sinfulness None of us are here claiming to be self-righteous. We have no righteousness in and of our own. And we probably fail you on a, a daily, a weekly basis. But Lord, it's by your grace we're saved. It's not of works. And so, Father, we continue to strive to live through the filling of your spirit, through the support of brothers and sisters in Christ, to help us to live that, that life that's honoring to you in every way. We thank you for your constant care and provision for us. We pray you just bless our time of fellowship across the way as well in the food.
for our bodies. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.